Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hey, and welcome to Between the Lines. This is your host, Chris Carden. Between the Lines is a podcast about law enforcement where we kind of take you behind the badge, back where we dig into the stories that made us and the stories that we wish we could tell. So we're joined today by a couple of great dudes that I know really well. But before we get to them, I want to give a shout out to our producer, Brent Henson, on the other side. Good morning, Brent. Hey, it's my first appearance on the podcast. Usually Aaron is here, but yeah, I'll be uh, sitting in his stead today. Uh, we're, we're joined also uh, this morning by two law enforcement legends, John <laughs> Bostain and Michael Warren. Hey, hey, hey. Good morning, guys. Hey, good, good morning. morning. Man, you guys look in the part. So, uh, for our listeners' sake, what we're going to dig into uh, a little bit of law enforcement day to day, and I'm going to ask you, Michael Warren, what is your EDC or everyday carry? What kind of firearm do you carry? Uh, I, I am a Glock guy, and I'm also a nine guy. So during the winter, I can get away with the Glock 17 because in Michigan you can conceal a whole heck of a lot. Uh, during the summer, which is about I don't know maybe two two and a half months here in the, this great state. Uh, I like the Glock 43. Okay. 43 or 43 X? 43. Oh, okay. I'm too, I'm too poor to have two versions of the same, same weapon. So I hear you. I hear you. Uh, what about a blade? Uh, I, I am not a blade guy because uh, I, I'm on airplanes a lot and I am scared that I'm going to throw that bad boy into my backpack and, and me and TSA, TSA are going to become even more acquainted than we already are. Yeah, do the walk of shame back to the uh, <laughs> the TSA office. Again. John Bostain, <laughs> I bet you carry some kind of fancy H&K custom combat, Wilson combat. No, I wish. No, actually, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm the exact opposite of Mike. Um, so my summers living in Georgia are much longer. So my summer lasts about nine months. So I'm carrying a Glock 43 for about nine months out of the year, uh, 10 months out of the year. And then uh, I carry a G45 uh, in the winter months. So, uh, yeah, and, um, it, it's funny. I'm not a Glock guy because I own SIGs and Smith. I own a lot of different stuff. But those, like that Glock 43, uh, I, I am actually going to turn that in and get an X, though. My hands, it, it's, uh, I need that just that little extra room. So uh, I'll be switching out at some point in time here. Well, you know, I always, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think that I'm a minimalist, okay? And I like to carry the, you know, just enough to get the job done. So I recently switched to the uh, Smith and Wesson 500 Magnum, uh, <laughs> and it—I uh, tell you what—it's—it's uh, heavy. The barrel is actually steel reinforced because the round is so heavy. Uh, so I just <laughs> stick that sucker right down in there, and then when it comes to blades, again minimalist. I just want to be able to accomplish the very minimum. I just go with the standard Bowie uh, because I think that really gets it done too. So. <laughs> That's not a knife. There's that. Yeah, that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> that was the worst Australian accent ever in the history of Australian accents. So tell me what Command Presence does. Don't you guys go around and teach cops how to be cops? Is that what you do? I think we don't teach cops how to be cops. I think we teach cops how to be better cops. Uh, it's probably the better way to say it. We uh, we kind of start with the premise that everybody's doing a great job out there, that uh, officers are doing a good job. Our 
our kind of mantra is that we want to help elevate them to just being great. So kind of uh, it's an underlying theme for us to transform uh, transform officers from good to great. And that's kind of symbolizes who we are. Right. Michael, what are some of the um, top rookie mistakes that you try to address when you're training a class? Uh, you know, oftentimes in law enforcement, we use the phrase training and experience. And I think a lot of times that young cops think that they have more, much more training and experience than they actually have, and it can negatively impact their decisions. Recognizing what you don't know. Are you telling me that as soon as you walk out of the academy, you don't know everything? Well, you walk out of the academy, and in many cases, FTOs tell you, hey, forget what you learned in the academy, so you probably know even less than you think you do. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> John, you know, what's what's the most common mistake or miscalculation by a brand new patrol guy? A uh, little bit what Mike said is I think sometimes they think they know more than they actually do. Um, and then along with that, I think our culture sometimes uh, frowns upon them asking questions. Uh, so when they ask why, a lot of times a veteran officer or even an FTO might take offense to that and uh, tell them just do it. I think if they understood why we do certain things, they'd probably perform better and quicker in this job. So you're saying basically because of the uh, the paradigm, you know, we're the cops, mm -hmm. we're the protectors, we're, you know, we're the sheepdogs. Uh, so they don't ask questions because they're embarrassed. They don't want to look like they're stupid or they weren't listening. So are there, or they're afraid, you know, that's pretty, right. a pretty common thing. Is that, is, is fear something that's uh, a danger to law enforcement? Sure. I think that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, they don't want to look stupid. Um, and so then that, that causes its own problem, right? If they try to figure out, especially brand new officer, if you're trying to figure yourself out on your own, uh, there's a good chance and likelihood for mistake there. Uh, but our culture has to be such that veteran officers uh, don't shy away uh, from the questions that younger officers are asking. Uh, again, it has to be a little bit more of that mentor-type relationship, whether it's the FTO or, or the uh, supervisor or just a veteran officer on shift. Um, I think they have to be available to answer questions. Hey, hey Chris, hey, real quick here. You know, one of the things uh, that they, they're scared to ask questions because they don't want to look stupid. Uh, I would propose that it's better to look stupid than actually be stupid. So, so the the, the questions the questions yep. are important. Brent put together a little bit of background, some some things for us to kind of dig into, and one of them was actually talking about rookie mistakes. And it's interesting how you guys have kind of just nailed down exactly pretty much what's on the list. Um, but one of them is, I think, kind of links to uh, the millennial generation, and that's the lack of respect for superior officers. And, and not just like the chief and the lieutenant, but, you know, quality officers that have time, you know, in the bag on the street. Is that something that's pretty common? Do you guys have any courses that address that? We, we have one uh, called uh, Leading Without Rank. And, and it's our belief based upon the research and based upon our experiences uh, that if we want to improve law enforcement as a profession, then there have to be leaders at every rank, no matter what your rank is, no matter what your level of experience no, and here's another important part. No matter what your job, it doesn't matter if you're a sworn officer, you're a dispatcher, you're in corrections, um, you're, you're a cadet working the front desk. Uh, the public looks at us as leaders. And so the development of leadership skills is one of those things uh, that is going to improve everybody and everything about the profession. Yeah, and, and to, uh, to your question also, I don't know that uh, we can label millennials, for example, as kind of in a broad term, uh, as having a lack of respect. Although I think 
uh, some veteran officers feel that way. I think there's somewhat of a disconnect there. And what we have found, and we talk about it in some of our classes, uh, sometimes it's just a change in communication style or preference. Uh, it's not meant to be, again, oftentimes if a rookie's asking a lot of questions, a veteran might take offense to that. What are they teaching these kids in the academy? So there's that kind of natural grind a little bit. Um, and I don't know that it has anything to do with a particular age group um i just think sometimes there's we communicate in different ways and we could do a lot better job of understanding people's uh, preferred communication styles so uh being uh able to kind of change our own gears you know and uh adjust to who we're talking to and why basically what we do on the street right mike yeah, that's right buddy if if you only have one tool on your tool belt you're probably not going to be a very uh, effective worker and if you only have one communication style, you're not going to be a very effective communicator. John, you started uh, your law enforcement careers. Up, I know you've spent time at Fletzy, and I mean, I know you're you've got uh, you know tons of credentials. But let's talk about the beginning for you. Where did you start? I started in Hampton, Virginia, Hampton Police Department. I got out of the Navy, um, and I got such a goofy story on this. Um, it, it's so funny. Uh, when I tell people how I actually got into law enforcement, sometimes it still amazes me <laughs> that I that I ended up here. Um, I got out of the military and I had this grand dream that I was going to work at this shrimp restaurant. I was working part time at a shrimp restaurant and they were going to make me the manager and then it was going to go nationwide. So the owner sold us this giant bill of goods. Right. Um, but Virginia Beach cops used to come into the restaurant all the time. And I asked the same questions that any but non-cop asks cops. I'm like, hey, do you ever shoot anybody? <laughs> right? Stuff like that. Uh, and then I would say, uh, you know, I would just ask him questions all the time. And finally, one of the cops that came in all the time to the restaurant, he's like, dude, you ought to think about being a police officer. And I'm like, nah, the shrimp, I'm going to be the shrimp king of the United States. <laughs> so I did not want to do that. But um, they're like, no, nah, you should just be an auxiliary police officer. Uh, and I was like, well, what's that? He's like, well, what it is, is you're like a volunteer firefighter, only you're a cop. So I'm like, all right. So I applied at the Hampton Police Division and I was actually going through the auxiliary police academy, uh, you know, four nights a week and, and weekends for six months. Uh, and I came to work one day uh, and my dream of being the shrimp king uh, were gone because there's chains on the door. The doors are locked and apparently the IRS had seized the building. And so I gotta uh, be honest with you, John, <laughs> this is a lot. Uh, this is a lot of force gump material you're giving me. I, know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, keep, know, right? I keep going shrimp burgers, shrimp toes, shrimp hamburgers, right. shrimp sandwich, shrimp stew. Oh, That's about exactly. it. Exactly. So, so I, uh, I make a desperate call to the Hampton Police Division. I said, hey, I graduate in two weeks from the Auxiliary Academy. Can I get a job? And they're like, yeah, you're already certified, so let's go. So uh, that was my, I guess, inglorious introduction to law enforcement. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I was. I uh, I learned the the core, you know, to protect and serve, and and it obviously uh, that was twenty eight years ago. But yeah, I had a, <laughs> a very unusual path into law enforcement. So you graduate, you're uh, you get hired there in Virginia. What's your very first duty weapon? We actually um, had uh, Smith and Wesson forty five. Um, now I don't even remember what model it was. Single stack. Uh, single stack and single act or uh, double action. Really? So, yeah. How what yep. was eight double and action. one? Eight and one. Yep, eight and one, nine and one. I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm embarrassed. I don't remember. <laughs> but uh, it was. It, yeah, it was a. I in fact that was a. Uh, oh, we actually back up. We switched to that. You just we actually carried the. Um, uh, 
M. Oh my goodness, the ten millimeter, the, the Smith Wesson ten millimeter. Uh, before that, uh, again, don't remember the model, but uh, then we switched to forty five. Wow, you're making me think. You're making me think way back. Well, man. you're old, John. I mean, you know, <laughs> know. we're we're here to help your cognitive uh, resources, <laughs> right? Uh, at least with the forty five. I mean, if you know. I mean, I'm seeing the glass half full. Um, at least if you're out fishing, you would have an extra boat anchor because you could just tie a loop around <laughs> it and toss it out, right? I mean, those 45s, yeah, yeah. that's old school right there. That's yeah, old 10 school. millimeter was uh, was even even heavier, I think. Yeah. What about you, Michael Warren? What, did you, what was your very first carry, on-duty carry? Glock 22. Yeah, the old 40 caliber, the law enforcement staple. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you what generation it was because that'd give away my age. Yeah, Gen three. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there a Gen zero point five or something like that? Because that may yeah, have been just, what it was. Say, uh, yeah, I'm I'm so old. My original Glock didn't have any finger grooves. <laughs> true, <laughs> true. You know, when I first got out of the police, well, when I went to the police academy, I uh, I went with two other uh, individuals from the, my department, and. We were the only three in a class of basically about 90 people that still had revolvers. It was oh, wow. so yes. embarrassing. You know, I felt like uh, Asa at the bank on Mayberry, you know. <laughs> Asa, let me see your pistol, you know. But it was a Smith & Wesson Model 66. And looking back on it now, I, if I would love to have that gun, you know. But then I was like, man, this thing is crap. Had wooden uh, grips and everything. <laughs> Yeah, it was terrible. It was awful. I had speed loaders. It was in 1994. I had speed loaders. Uh, So take me back. John Bostain getting out on that first call, that first car stop. Nervous. Knees are knocking. Walk me through it, JB. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) again, I'm just going to be brutally honest. Uh, I was scared to stop cars for a bit. Uh, I worked in a a district that was, I mean, really, really rough. But almost almost all of my training had occurred in the north part of the city. So uh, that was different type of policing in the north part of the city. So then I got down to what was called the South With area. And uh, unfortunately, in 1990, when I first took over, um, I was replacing one of our officers who had just been murdered in the line of duty um, while I was in the academy. Uh, So I was filling his spot. And I can remember the first couple of days being out there, um, you know, and I just I knew that Kenny had been murdered down there. Um, there was a lot of animosity towards law enforcement in that area. Uh, it's a rough. It was just a rough neighborhood. Uh, it took me a day or two just driving around I'm like, all right, you're a cop. You're supposed to be out contacting people and stopping people. So I just kind of, you know, uh, cowboyed up and finally stopped a car. But I'm not afraid to say that, you know, it took me a couple of days before I really, you know, I took calls, but before I got really proactive. Um, but it, it honestly, those initial contacts of just getting out of the car, talking to people, uh, really changed uh, very rapidly the type of law enforcement I, just, I ended up getting involved in. Uh, I started getting very deep into uh drug interdiction, things like that. And it actually led me to working in the narcotics unit as only about a year and a half on because um, I became very good at it. So after that initial two days, uh, I became uh, that cop that really enjoyed getting out, making contacts, uh, field interviewing people, lots of car stops and drug interdiction kind of became my thing after that. I can remember being a municipal cop and, you know, uh, most of the time when you, you just run calls, you know, you're uh, you got calls waiting. Uh, but sometimes like uh, when I had the opportunity, I'd ease out to the four lane and I'd play like I was a state trooper. 
put them on the side <laughs> of the road. You know how fast you were going. I loved that. I love that. And when they call me, they'd say, uh, uh, base to 219, I would always give my location like a trooper. I'd say, 219 US 280, go ahead. <laughs> I loved you. <it. laughs> Dude, I, it's so funny you say that because I was so the opposite. I almost never... Unless I was told I had a directed patrol for radar, I never had a radar unit in my car. I didn't stop anybody for speeding because there were so many other things that uh, that I was able to stop people for. So uh, I never checked out a radar. I was the opposite of a traffic guy. Hmm. It's kind of funny how we all – and it's funny how we all um, – we have a different way of getting started, you know. Um, I was a dark, I was kind of a drug hound right out of the gate. Uh, not sure why. It just, it's just the way things happened. Mike, what about you, my brother? Take me to that first out of the academy. Got my uniform on. My badge is shiny. Got my hat on. Handcuffs are oiled. Yep. I tell you what, though, man. Uh, I, 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 I thought I was doing something wrong because uh, it seemed like my first few days I couldn't find anybody doing anything wrong and, and i talk about it in our, in our in our class how you know when you first start you get to work early in uniform just in case right and, and then i would stay after my shift in my uniform just in case and i swear when i would sit and listen to the radio traffic after my shift all the people doing things wrong came they came out then because they people were finding arrests all over the place and i'm like either the people know i'm out there and they're avoiding me or i'm just not good at what i do <laughs> the word was out, Michael Warren. That's right. The mean, the mean streets of Novi. <laughs> That's right. So I figured out pretty pretty quickly that it uh, it wasn't them; it was me. Well, the criminal element, you know, they kind of like in the old gang movies. They may have, Psst, hey, I hear Warren's out tonight. Stay inside. <laughs> here he comes. <laughs> uh, here he comes. Back to you, John. Funniest thing that you ever saw. In the history of your law enforcement career, go. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think it was, I was working special investigations unit, and uh, we used to have uh, probation parole right along with us. It was a great combination. Um, we would just be able to make contacts with people. If they were on parole, uh, the probation or probation, the officer could go up and talk to them. So, um one particular night we were out riding around and uh, we go down this road and the probation officers hey 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 um we just uh, pull over that address right there i got a guy there um he was supposed to get a job i think he's and from what the probation officer said this guy was doing everything right he was not doing anything wrong he's like hey let me just go knock on the door and check with him we were not there for any type of interdiction at all we just uh, so probation officer knocks on the door and we hear boom 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 he's somebody's taking off running up the stairs mama answers the door swears that uh her son's not there and um and so we step in and then about uh, it was four or five seconds later, uh, we hear this giant crash in the kitchen. Uh, he had fallen through the ceiling onto the dining room table in the kitchen and started running out the back door. So <laughs> it was ridiculous. We were all the the probation officer was literally just checking to say, hey, man, did you get a job yet? There was no mindset of interdiction. He wasn't being violated or anything. I mean, he got violated after that. <laughs> well, I think that definitely gives you the mindset of what he thought about that parole officer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he came. I mean, he just must have stepped in between uh, the rafters in the ceiling. He came, I mean, he came right through onto the onto the that's kitchen hilarious. table. So uh, that's probably the funniest thing I ever saw. 
I remember uh, kind of, sort of a similar situation, and uh, I was not present when it happened, but we had a public housing unit. Uh, we called it the Northeast Precinct or the NEP, and it was a two-story apartment. They had a, I, I'm assuming, like a warrant on a guy, and as they're going in, one of the officers is standing down by the door, and the guy jumps out of this, the window above the uh, little patio and lands on the top of the police officer. So... <laughs> What about you, Michael Warren? You got any funny stories, man? Something that comes to mind is uh, my partner, Victor Laurie, and I, we were we were partners as a detective. And, and uh, long story short, we got to go to Hawaii as part of a homicide investigation. And we get out there and they assigned a detective to us for the week. And there was a guy that we needed to interview. And, and this dude shows up one day and he's convinced we're going to arrest him and take him back to Michigan. So he literally has all of his stuff packed in this little Walmart bag, and, and we're we're, dri- we're driving in uh, in the back. Of the, they had a detective assigned to us, so he's driving us around, and Vic's in the front seat, and I'm behind him, and and all of a sudden. This guy rolls down the window and starts shouting at this guy on the street. He goes, hey, they're taking me back to Michigan for murder. And it's like, I, I got all my stuff here, and I'm looking at this guy going, who, who are you talking to? And and it's like, I think he thought we were going to take him back to our hotel room and chain him up to the sink you know, drain or whatever. But I, I'm looking at Vic. I had no idea what to say. We, we, we didn't bring him back to Michigan, but... By the way, Vic, Vic is one of our uh, awesome instructors now, so... <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, Brent, I don't know what's sadder about that story. The guy thinking he was going to Michigan or everything he owned was in one Walmart sack. <laughs> I keep thinking uh, when uh, John was talking about him falling through the rafters, I kept thinking of Judd Nelson and Breakfast Club. You coming down. <laughs> so I kept going in my mind. <laughs> you want another? Th- you want another Saturday? Yeah. You got another Saturday. There's two. That's right. <laughs> Which again goes to show the age of this group. Hey, John, talk to me about virtual training. And, you know, COVID came along a couple of years ago and really changed the landscape. And, but you know, Virtual Academy, we've been doing this for years. Right. So tell us about the importance of not waiting for your agency to send you to training, but taking some accountability for your own training. Is that is that a thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And COVID obviously um, had that effect, right? We just couldn't do in-person training. So virtual became... Uh, a, a huge aspect of trying to get people law enforcement training. But as you well know, as you're in this space, a lot of it was just being very poorly done. It was, um, you know, a lot of talking head stuff qualified as training. You know, some uh, 15 minutes of somebody giving their opinion, oh, we're going to call that training on whatever topic. Uh, so Virtual Academy, the reason we partnered with you guys because we loved the quality. We just, we loved the way, the look of it. We loved the SMEs that you were using and stuff like that. So the, I personally believe, in the, and again, the science bears it out, that um, I think virtual training should be here forever. I mean, it should be part of what we do. Uh, I would like to see now, post-COVID though, I'd like to see us using it more uh, as prerequisite, meaning getting training into their, get the foundational training and using a blended learning approach, meaning I get as much training as I can ahead of time through a platform, you know, through virtual academy. And then when I get my training days for in-service, now I got two or three days to really focus on skill development, scenario-based training and things like that. So I, I think the people who are using virtual academy really well will understand we're going to get the classroom type instruction. Uh, we're going to complete all that before we ever show up for in-service training. And now you just, 
you just opened up three or four uh, days possibly of actual hands-on scenario-based uh, decision-based training and things like that, or more time at the range, or if you've got a firearm simulator. So I think what we really need to be doing is looking at the combination of virtual academy plus building off of that into uh, in-person training. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy. Because you deserve more. At Virtual Academy, we have a full-blown, uh, staffed, amazing 911 team. And they have, uh, I mean, they're just doing fantastic things. And they've gotten a ton of clients that are using Virtual Academy as their primary training source. But on the 911 side, that's easy to do because, you know, they're at a computer. they not saying they have time because they're first responders, too. But in law enforcement, what I hear a lot of time is virtual training is, you know, we can't, you can't learn that there. Well, the thing is, is to use virtual training as the bridge, you know, fill in the gaps. Mike, what do you think about? Uh, so I want to explain a little bit about left of bang and what that means and about using virtual training to fill in the gaps. So if you have you have the bang, you have the incident and then the live class is six months from now, let's say it's an evoc. What do you do during those six months? I mean, that's a perfect hole for EVOC. What, what do you think about well, that? It, it, when you go and you look at the science of learning, uh, what they say for true learning to take place, there has to be frequent, lower, no consequence testing that requires effort for retrieval where the topics are interleaved and the training is spaced. A and the, the two components. It's a lot of big words, I'm Warren. About, that's a I'm lot of big. I'm about to break them down you know, for you, brother. You're yeah. putting some vocabulary yeah. on us. Let's do it. But the, the, the two things, though, I think are most lacking in law enforcement training are the interleaving and the space part, because the spacing in most law enforcement training takes place every year. We have in-service once a year. And what the virtual platform allows you to do is to have that regular ongoing training that is spaced, that is supplementing and enhancing the training that you provide during that in-service training. It, it ensures, because you know what, Chris, you know this, man. That Murphy's Law says that if you have an officer who's trained on a topic, they're not going to encounter that topic until 364 days down the road, right before they go to the next uh, in-service training. And that's when they have to go and apply it. Virtual ensures that you're getting that training along and that it's it, it's further cementing the learning in your mind. And, and I think that and can I just throw another thing out there for virtual? Sure, I'll allow it. I think one of the biggest things that virtual does, it allows people to learn on the sleep schedule that they're already on. Because one of the weaknesses, especially in agencies, is uh, the fact that the in-person training always takes place on days. Well, nearly two-thirds of our people probably work outside of that period. And this allows them to do it when their mind is not foggy because they, they're sleeping their regular schedule. It just does good things for a longer period of time. That is a great point. Uh, I'm going to get marketing on the line here and <laughs> tell them to put that in a flyer, Brent. What do you think? I mean, gosh, that's it's not something that I think a lot of people consider. I mean, you know, if you give them a chance to embrace the training on their time, take to it a little bit more. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, that's I'm, I, I really have never considered that. What, what, here's the thing. You know, why, why do we why do we bring an entire shift a day shift for training? Now you've got an entire shift that's not sleeping well, it, it, even an in-person training. I, I, I've told John before, I wish we did more in-person training on nights. I would love to go and do a midnight class because isn't it better that one person uh, is is having to change your sleep schedule than an entire group? Yeah, and to that point, Chris, I'll tell you, we actually did that with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office um, last year. Uh, we did exactly that. I said, hey, would you, have, would you ever consider coming in and doing training at night? And I'm like, oh, of course we will. So we, act, we actually did it. But of all the classes we've done over the years, and the tens of thousands of people, we offer that. We tell people, hey, we'll train on your time. Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, the one and only time anybody ever took us up on it. And it, it's to, to Mike's point. We're going to inconvenience entire shift of people just so the instructor doesn't have to have their schedule interrupted. We should think differently about that. I 100% agree with Mike. And like I said, we have offered it for years and only had one agency take us up on it. So I, I mentioned a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago that I wanted you guys to, and it doesn't matter who, just jump in there. But I want somebody to, for our listeners that may not have a good idea of this concept. Explain um, the bang theory to me. Left a bang, right a bang. Tell me about bang. Yeah, so I will say that it's probably one of the most important, Michael agree with me, probably one of the most important books that any police officer can read. It should be taught at the academy. Um, so we, I'll start by saying a lot of times in the law enforcement academy or even FTO and stuff, we hear people say stuff like, well, keep your head on swivel, watch your six. Uh, these meaningless phrases, because what does it even mean? Keep your head up, right? We say these things or always be aware, uh, but we don't teach them how to do it. We don't teach them what to look for and how to look for things. That's what Left to Bang does. It's a great tool that teaches us what to look for and how to look for it. So uh, in concept, Left to Bang is simply this. There's what's called baseline. Baseline is whatever's normal for a given situation. We, If some people will misunderstand it, they'll think we're talking about complacency, but it's not. Baseline is simply this. It's what normally happens in the given situation. I know how, if I stop a car, I kind of know what's going to happen. I know they're going to pull over most of the time, right? I know how that's going to look. When I go on a domestic, I'm going to make contact. We're going to figure out what's going on. Then we'll make a legal decision uh, if I'm doing a pedestrian stop. So it doesn't matter. Baseline is what normally happens in most contacts. Now, left to bang is all about detecting anomalies. Now, anomalies are anything that are abnormal. That's what an anomaly is. It's any deviation from the baseline. And what happens is those deviations, those anomalies start to build up. Uh, it tells us that something is probably wrong and that we need to make a decision right now. So the, the simple formula is baseline plus anomalies equals a decision. Uh, and that decision might be wait for backup. It could be get off the X. There's Mike and I can't tell everybody what decisions they have to make, but that's really what it is. And it's important to understand that anomalies, they don't occur in a vacuum. If these, this, if one, two, three abnormal things are happening, something's wrong. And you need to take a, a proactive uh, decision. Uh, and in the book, they talk about having a bias for action. So that is John's layman terms of it. But uh, Mike could probably add some additional thoughts on that. Hey, hey, Chris, uh, first of all, man, I want to say your, your dispatch platform, uh, I think, reaches one of the most undertrained yet most important aspects of the law enforcement profession. And, and to add on to what John said about left the bang, uh, I think that one thing that's lacking in law enforcement training is teaching left the bang to our dispatchers. Uh, because like you said, they are our first responders. If they receive a phone call, 
there are certain characteristics that they get with certain types of calls. Again, not every call is the same, but if we can start teaching our dispatchers who are the first receivers of information to be looking for those anomalies, uh, especially when you look at uh, some, some of the research that's been done on the power of dispatch priming, I think we're going to give much better product from dispatch, and which is going to equate to a much better response from our officers. Well, I tell you, the whole uh, uh, you know concept of making telecommunicators you know first responders, and finally in the industry recognizing their importance and their role, their critical role. I think it's just, I think it's great. Cause I mean, I, I started in civilian law enforcement on the radio. As, you know? as did I, I. I mean, yeah, you know, and it was whoever, Hey, who, uh, who, who wants to work the radio and everybody just kind of turned around, you know, but that's a, that's a key critical, uh, position. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you say that. So oh, I've been doing some work with a, a, a young police officer, uh, in Indiana, uh, who started her career in dispatch. And one thing she said to me that, that really has bothered me for, for a while now, she said that she got interested in, in law enforcement. So she called up the local uh, county dispatch center and said, hey, what's required to be a, a dispatcher? And the response was a pulse and an application. Mm. And if we re- if that's how we're treated internally, then what type of product can we expect from, uh, expect from those people? Yeah, you want to devalue uh, an industry, you make statements like that. Right. But I'll tell you, our 911 team at Virtual Academy, they're doing great they, things. They are. I mean, they're they are just all over the place. Yep. They're amazing. So let's talk about this, guys. One of the things I like to ask people is, you know, you go work your shift. Uh, maybe you had a homicide. Maybe you had, you know, child sexual abuse call. You know, you never know what cops are going to get. Then, you know, you got to shut it all down and go home. What are some coping skills uh, that you guys would recommend if, if you know, I'm a brand new officer and you're, you get to tell me one thing, what's it going to be, John Bostain? What should I do to make sure I don't go nuts? Yeah. So the broad term I would say is wellness. Um, I know that's, it's kind of a cliche, but it really does. Uh, the best coping mechanism is going to be, um, you know, your fitness and, and what you eat. Those are probably the two leading things. Uh, and it seems to be an area of law enforcement where we don't do well. Um, but it's funny, I'll let Mike answer a little. We actually have in one of our programs kind of a framework uh, for coping. And uh, it's something that Mike created called Train the Best Me. And I don't know if we have time to go through all of it, but um, he created this framework that we teach in our de-escalation on emotional intelligence. And if you follow that, it's the perfect coping mechanism for being a police officer. So give me an overview, Mike. Uh, to train the best me. First of all, it starts off uh, with good training. If you have good training, you're going to be better prepared to be able to, to deal uh, with, with what you face. Uh, we also talk about the importance of breathing. And, you know, I always tell people, listen, I've lived 52 years on this earth. So I've never had to think about the whole breathing thing, but it's the intentional breathing, whether you call it combat breathing or tactical breathing or whatever. But, but doing that, it just helps to slow everything down and helps to lower the stress. Um, you're eating. John talked about that, how important it is. Uh, sleeping. Sleep disorders occur in the law enforcement profession at twice the rate they do in the general public. And, those, and, and that's the other thing, Chris. Man, the stuff we're talking about is not just the effect it has, has on us during our career. Man, it's that stuff it does to us after we retire. You know, the, the quote-unquote golden years, uh, you know, we, they're not as long because of things like uh, sleep disorders. And then we talk about team. Surround yourself with good people that help you to recognize, hey, you know what? You just had a bad call. You know, that, 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 that's a terrible thing you saw. Yeah. 
can, can, can we talk about it? You know, having somebody around like that. Then we talk about uh, getting your mind straight. And getting your mind straight is about identifying that sense of calm that you're going to need during a stressful situation. The problem is, if you don't know what that sense of calm feels like or what it looks like, how can you possibly go and, and grab a hold of it? And then finally, the last part is exercise. And I'm not talking about a Olympic you know, style training or anything like that, but some type of physical activity. And the latest research says as little as 80 minutes a week has a tremendous impact on your mental health and your decision making capabilities. Hmm. Now, is competitive eating considered a workout? <laughs> if you, we have a Marcos in, right down it, the road. It, it would appear to be that way if you go and you look in some squad rooms across America. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you guys got uh, one of your team members is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Yes, he is. Correct. What's his name? Rick Taylor. Rick Taylor. And I'll tell you, I met Rick not too long ago. And he was a little mouthy. He was about this close, Bostain, for me really showing him who the boss is. You understand? Uh, me, I'm talking rear naked I, I, show. I would have liked to see that. That's <laughs> yeah. So wellness and law enforcement. Now, that's a new concept that has not been around very long. I mean, where, you know, you're seeing uh, wellness apps and wellness is kind of a buzzword. But when I was coming up, wellness was not, I mean, there was no care or concern about how much time you spent with your family. And, you know, the coping mechanism for us usually was, you know, a shot of Jameson and a 12 pack of Keystone. You know, I can remember going to choir practice. So I'm sure you guys know what that is. So, right. You know, we get off the shift at 6 a.m., take off the uniform shirt, go in there and get a 12 pack and, and hit the national forest and have a good time. But wellness now is something luckily we're looking at. Are agencies taking a proactive position in wellness are they identifying like is there wellness officers is there i mean i know there's probably policies like a you know critical management type policy but are agencies taking some ownership in that i i think that we are getting much better as a profession at recognizing that just because somebody becomes a first responder and i, I want to make sure that we, we we point out that we're not just talking about sworn law enforcement that that, that ha have to be aware of their wellness uh, also on the dispatch side and, and on the correction side as well. Uh, but we are much better at responding and offering some resources. But I, I got to give a shout out to the folks at First Help. Uh, you're talking about an organization that is that has really uh, gone proactively to change the, the perception of wellness in the law enforcement profession. Uh, Dr. McGill and Karen Solomon and, and Joe Willis, those folks that they have done a tremendous tremendous job but but i also want to throw out here one of the things i think we have to do as a profession is start this in the academy i mean if we're going to teach left to bang in the academy left to bang also includes recognizing the anomalies that happen in me the changes that are going on in me and the negative impact that they can have uh as eric greiton said he said it's unrealistic to have this 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 desire to have a stress-free life what our desires should be is to be able to handle appropriately the stress that life hands us. Well, we have to equip our people with those skills. And the sooner we do it, the better off we are individually and as a profession. Very good. Very good. Spot on. Yeah. He's pretty he's pretty sharp, isn't he, Bustin? Sharp guy. And you know what? It, yeah. I think along the, I think if you want to talk about the transformation that's occurred, uh, I think when we came on, so we're early, not, you know, mid to early 90s guys. And when we came on, I think wellness was optional 
it's it, it, that's the best way to describe it. Your wellness was optional. Um, now there is in some agencies. I wish it was more because we travel all over the country and we still see that wellness is not necessarily a priority. Or if it is, it's because we have a policy, but there's no re- true wellness program. Um, but it, it, I'm seeing a shift. And I'll just give a huge shout out to College Station, Texas. Uh, I was just there two weeks ago and the training officer was walking me through. They've got an entire CrossFit gym all set up and they, uh, they get on duty time. They have a, a great break room where people uh, can bring their meals and meal prep, and, and they have a they actually have a place people can cook in the police department. I mean, it really is a commitment to wellness overall there. And again, I'm not saying CrossFit's the right thing. It just happens to be something that they have, and they get on duty time. So that's that fitness. Uh, a lot of people, like I said, meal plan, bring eat their meals together. It's uh, that is a shift we're seeing, just not. I don't think we're at the tipping point yet. I, I, that would be my gauge of being around the country. We're probably not at the tipping point, but we're certainly moving in the right direction uh, when it comes to wellness. Well, I think that uh, across the country, you're also seeing and there's a similar setup in fire stations for the firemen. Mm-hmm. They have a place to cook their meals and then they have their bedrooms where they can uh, snuggle monkey up all anytime they want That's to. Right. Of course, now all you firemen that are getting mad, ready to send us a bad email, just know that, you know, cops and firemen, we take some jabs at each other. So this is between the lines, <laughs> taking a jab at firemen. <laughs> One of my best buddies, Jared Cunningham, is a fire guy. And we, it's, it's constant with us, you know, <laughs> quiet firemen sleeping signs out in front of the place. So what about retired cops? Because I can remember one time, you know, I, I pulled up on a wreck accidentally. I was a captain. And you know the scene where uh, Will Ferrell is crying and trying to drink his wine on the, you know, that was me sitting in the bathtub with like a Bud Light. So later in life, that stuff kind of comes back up. So if let's say I'm removed 10 years from law enforcement, I start thinking about that, you know, the bad one. What can a guy do? What's what are there resources out there? Uh, There are, and I'll go back to First Help, man. They they have some tremendous resources available uh, on their on their website. Uh, But that's that's part of where I think the paradigm needs to shift. Is let's call them what they are: they're injuries, they're psychological injuries. But but Mm. but but they are they're service uh, injuries. And and I I believe that if we're if we're concerned about somebody's well being, I often say in my classes, I, I don't like it when we call people assets or resources because by their very nature, by their very definition, assets and resources are designed to be used up and then thrown away when their utility is gone. And, and oftentimes in this profession, perhaps we see our people that way. Oh, well, you're retired now. Doesn't matter. That you, I mean, if it was a physical injury, but we're talking a back injury, they get a medical, uh, medical retirement and they're taken care of in doctor's appointments. What about those psychological ones? Yeah. Good point. Uh, what about, if I were to ask you, John Bostain, uh, what do you know now that you wish you would have known uh, day one? Uh, I actually alluded to it earlier. I, if I could go back and do things, I would ask more questions um, because uh, some of the stupid, stupid mistakes I made, and we all made them, uh, were because I just didn't ask. I, because, and uh, if I can, I'll share the stupidest thing I ever did, my biggest rookie mistake, uh, it still haunts me to this day. Um, it was raining 
and I saw a person in front of me, I thought they were DUI. It is absolutely pouring and I've got maybe two weeks on the job, so I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. So I pull the car over and then it hits me. I'm like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do now? I um, can't do sobriety tests out in this driving rain. So now I don't even know what to do. So instead of asking anybody, um, so I go up to the window and I have the guy, he's still sitting in his car, the engine's on, he's sitting there, have him roll his window down and I give him a PBT right as he's sitting. I mean, just utter stupidity, right? Uh, I give him a PBT. He comes back like 0.12 or something. So I said, I said, sir, you need to step out of the vehicle. He says, no, I don't. And he put it in drive. And so now I'm, I jump in my car. I, I start getting on the radio, telling me, you know, hey, I got this guy fleeing. Supervisor says, are you in a, are you in a vehicle pursuit? And I, I, I didn't even know what to say. <laughs> I'm like, because the, guy, the guy's driving like 30 miles an hour, 25, 30 miles an hour. And he's stopping. His well, I'm in a pursuit, <laughs> kind of. So, well, and that's exactly what happened. Dude was stopping at stop signs. So I would call out, hey, vehicle stopped. And I'd get ready to jump out. And then he'd take off again. And uh, the supervisor's yelling on the radio. He's like, he goes, what are your vehicle speeds? Uh, 25 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, We're at a roaring 23. Oh, my gosh. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> so anyways, the guy actually, he drives home and he parks his driveway. He gets out. Uh, he's, you know, and he basically says, I didn't want my car towed. But anyways, <laughs> so so the stupidity of that is, you know, I, I probably should have thought about, um, you know, what am I going to do? I had really no thought I could have asked somebody, hey, listen, how do you even do it? Uh, how do I deal with a DUI in the rain? You know, things like that. So I personally think if I were to go back, I would ask more questions uh, about about stuff, just stuff in general, um, because I had some really good mentors that were not FTOs uh, that taught me stuff that I didn't ask for. And those were relationships I could start asking. But uh, I worked with a lot of people that you just didn't ask questions. And so that's one thing I, I would tell, tell people that, that I learned I wish I could do over is to ask more questions. You uh, reminded me of an old story that I tell from time to time, but uh, I was not there. This got passed on to me. We had an old school sergeant. Uh, there he was Talladega County Sheriff's Office in Alabama and they had to pick up this girl they had a warrant on her and they knocked on the door mom comes to the door and says hey yeah yeah she's in her she's in her room back there but now she's completely deaf and she leaves her door locked so I have to flick the light switch you know they go back there and pound on the door of course Sheriff's Department come out you know and she said I told y'all she was deaf so the old school sergeant just starts screaming Sheriff's Department come out you know <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we get in situations like that and we totally lose our faculties. Right. It's like, I don't know, you know, a 20 mile an hour car chase. It's almost like he's doing it wrong. <laughs> right. This guy's doing it wrong. He ought to be going 100 miles an hour. Hey, Mike Warren, what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you rolled out into that unit the first time? Man, I, I tell you what, buddy, I, 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 best I can do is narrow it down to two. One's, one's professional, one's personal. Uh, num number one, professionally, uh, your agency has a responsibility to train you appropriately, but learning is an individual responsibility. It, it, and th that, that right there, uh, even if they do send you to training, it's, it's, it has to be intentional on your part to learn because learning means that you're changing behavior, you're improving behavior. So that, that's number one. And number two, I would say uh, it may seem like this career is never going to end, but it does come to an end. So make sure, make sure that you take pictures, not the kind that gets people in trouble, 
but pictures of your <laughs> of your brothers and sisters as a reminder of this family, this the, the, these group that you work with. And if I recognize that it's coming to an end, start preparing for retirement day one on the job. Way too many people still left out here on the job that are still there because they have to be, not because they want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And financial planning as well. Absolutely. You know, you see all these guys pulling their retirement out at, you know, 10 years and down payment on a trailer. Yep. Come on, man. Exactly. Think it through. Think it through. So, John, if I want to know more or find out more about command presence and, and how to get some of your training from, you know, uh, you or Michael, what, what do I do? Where do I go? The easiest thing to do is go to our website, uh, www.commandpresence.net. And it's .net. I wish we had the .com. Somebody stole that. So, uh, we, uh, but it's uh, commandpresence.net. You can find out a lot of information there. It's easy to contact us. You can submit a form. You can call us. Uh, we make ourselves pretty easily available. That's probably the best way to start. And I'm sure Brent will put that stuff, uh, that information down in the show notes. Yep, so. be easy to find. And I will say this, a lot of the information you're talking about, you're specifically talking to law enforcement or 911, but these are, this is great advice just for me as a layperson, not in law enforcement, you know, financial planning, wellness. And these are all things that I need to do as the lowly AV guy here. Well, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, one of the things, uh, too, too many people think they become Superman or superwoman when, when, when they become police officers or dispatchers. And, and if we lose our humanity, it's because we chose to lose our humanity. If we recognize we're human, we get lots better results, decisions. We get a lot better retirement all across the board. Yeah, and, but, on, but on that point, I think our culture still, unfortunately, the culture sometimes dissuades that, right? Uh, they still want you to be superhuman. Uh, they want you to be a robot. Uh, they're not. And th- listen, all this to say, of course, it's um, we've seen changes. We're moving in the right direction. We're moving in the right direction on wellness. It's becoming a topic uh, that people are finally comfortable talking about, things like that. People are, impl- But the reality is sometimes the culture itself still w- wants to enforce this idea that you've got to be superhuman. Uh, you can't be bothered by the things you see, uh, things like that. And it's just ridiculous ridiculous and you know we've got a lot of work to do to to kind of get to that tipping point for sure uh hey brent i know that uh you know these guys pretty well i know you've worked with them in the studio before i think yeah but i you know just you and i talk and i do have to tell a funny command president oh. story too. <laughs> so we're we're up in martin tennessee at our corporate headquarters i think it was the first time you guys came up and met with Dr. Nassar Nassar, the legend. And we had a nice long uh, meeting. Uh, Dr. Nassar spent a lot of time with you, John. And we went to dinner and had some libations and some fun. And uh, maybe a libation or two too many. I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. So we get up to the apartment sprint and uh, I get a I get a knock on the door. Hey, we got some pizza down here. And I go down to where their apartment is and Michael Warren and John Bostain are tearing into this pizza. It looked like savages. It was like in the natural habitat, the command presence specialists eat. And it was a bloodbath. That Godfather's pizza lasted about 30 seconds. This is the best, the best so. pizza I've ever had right here. Well, to be fair, their options are limited there in Martin. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but at 11 o'clock at night, when you've had a couple Johnny Walker blues, it doesn't really matter. It <laughs> could have right. been the cardboard painted red. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good. <laughs> hey, guys, listen, again, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Between the Lines and uh, for being you know, solid, good partners of Virtual Academy. 
and we appreciate you. And I know, I know your heart. I know the heart of both of you guys and you guys are doing the Lord's work, man. And I'm so, so supportive that law enforcement has resources like you guys. Thanks for joining us. This is between the lines. We appreciate you guys. Talk soon.